most important lesson is something Peter Thiel also taught me uh, in 2000, realistically, um, is that people systematically undervalue their time. If you think about it, the scarcest resource that all of us have is time. You can always recreate other resources. So if you're out of money, in theory, you can create new money. Um, but time, no one's yet figured out how to create more of. So I think you have to ascribe a significant value to every increment of time, whether it's a minute, an hour, you can divide it however you like, but fundamentally asking yourself, is this worth it? Is this the best thing I can be doing with my time? So I've sort of always had that philosophy. Um, I think Peter distilled it for me in a way of applying it. And then once you have that philosophy, you start asking yourself questions like, is this literally the best thing I can be doing with my time? And so that requires you to have a, sort of a pre-existing view about what's important to you in life. Is it professional success, family, health, fitness, whatever? But you have to come, you sort of have to derive your top two or three priorities first. And then it's like, how do I systematically ensure that I'm allocating my time to meet my priorities? Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice, and we're here to encourage you. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and even YouTube. You can also listen to our podcast on www.livebetterco.org. Have the best day. Welcome back to the Live Better podcast. Today, Jason and I are super pumped to have a really cool conversation with Keith Raboy. Um, this is going to be dialing in on some really fun topics. Um, and Keith, how are you doing today in SF? Doing fairly well. I mean, probably as well as one can do in these post-COVID times. So what... Um, Right now, you are, you're working on lots of different projects, a bunch of different things. Your Twitter profile is entrepreneur, investor, and contrarian. So what does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think on the uh, entrepreneur, it's pretty self-explanatory. I like to help start companies, uh, help scale companies, high-growth startup technology startups. Investor, basically what I've done for the most part for the last seven years of my life is be a a traditional venture capitalist that fund companies from uh, seed rounds to series A to series B, um, help them get off the ground, help them scale. And then contrarian is I, I hope to think that I have somewhat original perspectives on life. Uh, and that's the only way to be, really be successful as an entrepreneur or investor anyway. But um, I occasionally share my uh, crazy opinions with the world. Um, they range from the sublime to the ridiculous and, you know, all, everything in between. Uh, but, uh, I, yeah, I really do think that one needs to learn to think for him or herself. And that that's the fundamental principle of life. All right, Keith, you've helped grow PayPal, LinkedIn, Square. You've been on the board of Yelp and Reddit, Angel Investments in YouTube, Palantir, Eventbrite, and Lyft. With those crazy opinions, what crazy opinion of yours through all of the last 15 years has most like helped one of those projects? Like where on that kind of like contrarian continuum has one of those opinions like really helped a business? It's a great question. Um, you skipped over maybe one easy uh, one to talk about is Airbnb. Um, I remember meeting Airbnb when the three founders were living in an apartment in uh, Somo in San Francisco. And they were basically explaining the concept to me and it just res it just clicked in my brain instantly, which was the the concept that, you know, people would stay in strangers apartments and homes, uh, writ large, uh, 30 seconds into the monologue, Brian Chesky, the founder CEO was explaining the concept to me. I just said, stop. This is the greatest thing since YouTube, you know, I, I definitely need to invest. 
And so sometimes you just have an epiphany, whereas everybody else in the world, pretty much everybody else on the planet at that moment thought Airbnb was absolutely ridiculous. There were other people who thought Brian, Joe, and Nathan were phenomenally great founders, but everybody else laughed at the idea. And I, I can break down you know, exactly what resonated with me or with YouTube actually is maybe even easier way to explain. Um, same thing, like 20 seconds into meeting a former colleague of mine from PayPal, uh, Java Green, who's the co-founder of YouTube, um, at a barbecue in Memorial Day weekend in 2005. He, I had basically asked him, hey, what are you up to? Just as one would greet any other former colleague. And he said, I've got this cool new site. And I said, what's it called? He said, YouTube. And I said, what does it do? And he's like, it allows you to share videos. And I said, you mean professional videos or like amateur videos? He said, like amateur videos. I said, well, I need to invest. He's like, don't you even want to see the site? I'm like, yeah, maybe. Um, and back then we didn't really have cell phones that had mobile you know, internet. So we borrowed the host bedroom. And then he proceeded for the next hour to demo literally every single video on the site. But decomposing why it instantly resonated with me, I remember very clearly that I had been looking for something coded in Flash um, since actually early 2003. Um, a friend of mine is a technologist and explained to me why Flash would enable certain things. And I'd been scouring the universe for two and a half years trying to find something interesting in Flash. And YouTube was coded in Flash. Secondly, I just returned from uh, visiting my parents in New Jersey. And my dad, who's not really a technologist, really a CPA by training, um, wanted to show me these videos that he captured on some random device as soon as we landed at the airport. And so it immediately occurred to me when uh, Javed mentioned that it was like a site for sharing videos that, wow, you know, my dad was doing this already. And he was like a 60-year-old accountant that there was probably a lot of latent demand to share videos. And then the last part, which is a little more edgy, was the long tail nature of video um, also was just instantly um, attractive to me based upon a conversation I'd had with a, a former friend, well, a friend of mine um, going uh, back a decade who had gone to high school with a porn producer. And his high school porn producer friend had mentioned that when the internet took off, everybody is basically interested in consuming long tail uh, genres of porn instead of the mainstream you know, DVDs and things like that were produced to be sell as many copies as possible. So they were kind of mainstream porn, but as soon as the internet took off, everybody started watching their own you know, unique genres. And so the three of those ideas, my dad, this porn example, and this flash technology example just instantly crystallized in my, in my brain. I was like, I must invest. So you know, that's basically how this stuff works is you have these random combination of insights or observations, and then someone brings them together for you, and it just instantly makes sense. I love that kind of like winding tale of how like different businesses have done that. And I was looking back at at least like your LinkedIn resume and see that law as your background. Can you walk through some of your just kind of entrepreneur journey? Because I think if you you're looking at it from an overhead view, you have done so much and now are operating at such a high level that I'm sure those patterns and connections are happening almost immediately and on a day to day basis. Can you just walk back through some of your entrepreneur's journey and just kind of walk people through what that felt like um, taking on sort of like project after project and sort of making some of those connections and building that into the career as an entrepreneur that you have now? Yeah. So, I mean, I had a fairly eclectic background myself. As you mentioned, I started as a lawyer, which is not necessarily the best way to become either an entrepreneur or a VC, truthfully, or a technologist of any type. Um, I had wanted to be a lawyer since I was in sixth grade and really you know, designed my life around, you know, getting admitted to law school. So uh, I, I did that. I, you know, basically did the classic pre-law curriculum, political science major sort of stuff, lots of extracurricular activities, went up graduating from Harvard Law School, clerking for a well-known federal court, federal appellate court judge in Houston, Texas, and then actually practiced law for three and a half years post-clerkship. So I really didn't start anything, uh, getting involved in technology in any meaningful sense until I basically turned 30. Um, so, you know, the advice I usually give people is when they're asking for career advice, it's like, whatever you do in your 20s, you're going to be better off than I did. Because I spent all my <laughs> I spent all my thirties like either studying law or practicing law, which is not the most productive use of my time, given or with the benefits of hindsight anyway. Um, so yeah, I really jumped cold turkey 
into the world of technology um, in February of 2000, which was a month before the first internet bubble collapsed. So the, the advice and counsel that, you know, maybe I should jump from law into business and technology was probably pretty good advice, but the timing was about as bad as humanly possible. Uh, so it'd be like opening like a restaurant, like, you know, on the, uh, March 1st this year before COVID or something. <laughs> uh, it was about that bad. Um, but, you know, somehow or another survived. Um, I wound up navigating my way um, into this uh, crazy group of misfits in Silicon Valley, um, running this company that was bleeding money, that bleeding $10 million plus a month. Uh, I was running out of money, a fairly rapid clip, had fired two CEOs and had its third CEO in six months, um, company now known as PayPal, but um, at the time was definitely not so obviously you know, ordained for success. Um, fortunately, we were able to turn around the company. Uh, my friend from college, Peter Thiel, had been actually uh, elevated to interim CEO on September 25th in 2000. He uh, replaced the fired Elon Musk. And um, in early November of 2000, I started uh, discussing and joining the company, discussing with Peter to, uh, a role within the company and joining the company in November of 2000. And then we were able to turn the company from a complete mess into a profitable company pretty quickly, file RS1 the day before 9-11 in 2001, but still go public one way or the other in February of 2002. Um, so kind of went through this uh, crazy two and a half year rocket ride uh, and, you know, that enabled me to stay in technology and, you know, give me the license to do more of this crazy stuff. When you look at that example, you mentioned that kind of very fast that you were able to turn the company around. So one of the things, you know, Jason and I are, are running our business and we consult and talk to a bunch of other people that are in the stage in which we're in with our company and where we're taking things. And, um, what would you say when you look, whether it's whether it's now in investing or whether you're deep involved in a business, what are some of the key things you look for? Um, maybe it's gaps or oversights um, to, like you said, turn that company around or take a company that is a good idea, Airbnb, YouTube, whatever it may be, and actually turn it into something that that makes a profit, that is a real business. Um, I think a lot of people see now and hear the terms, whether it's angel investor or see, you know, where money goes, whether look at something like Shark Tank or something like that. But the work that gets done is what turns those businesses into something. So what are some of the key things that and, and I want you to think about and talk about, you know, as you did with the company you just mentioned and what you do when you help um, invest or advise with some of the positions you're in right now? Yeah. So, I mean, look, company building from scratch to transforming an industry is extremely difficult. Um, it is a, a, a fairly high order task with a, a lot of heroic effort, blood, sweat, tears. You know, Elon uh, describes it as learning to chew glass. And it's a bit like that kind of process. So I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, uh, underestimate the degree of difficulty or the degree of pain that one who chooses to build a technology high growth startup is sort of, you know, subjecting him or herself to. However, there are some form, there are some formulas that are better than others, just like there are to be a professional athlete. Like, so I think, you know, basically the goal of being a professional athlete is about as likely as, you know, to, in terms of success, your odds are about as likely as if you said, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur who builds a public company. And like most public, uh, like most professional athletes who train, you know, most of their lives to, to succeed in a very competitive industry, entrepreneurs definitely have to allocate a lot of time, attention to this success. But there are, there are some like, I don't want to call them hacks because that sounds like they're shortcuts, but there are some principles that are generally applicable. I, I would start with reading um, my friend and colleague now, Peter Thiel's book, uh, Zero to One, which really does distill a couple key concepts. The most important being that you need to predicate the company on a secret. And what a secret means is you have some insight or conviction about the world that most people don't understand or yet appreciate. Airbnb and YouTube, I talked about um, some of the are, are perfect illustrations of that. The founders 
had insights into human behavior or human needs that the rest of the world didn't really yet understand. So I think you need a secret. Then I think you need anomalous data. And what I mean by anomalous data is data that defies expectations. So in the PayPal example, um, eBay, which basically powered the growth of the company uh, in some ways forever, uh, really wasn't one of the top eight or 10 target markets when the company was founded. It was an accidental discovery that 54 power sellers on eBay started to hand type in, please pay me with PayPal into their eBay listings. And that the PayPal executives noticed this. And one of them particularly decided to embrace this, even though it was completely off our strategy. So looking for anomalous data um, allows you to come up with a paradigm that other people won't see. It's also true for scientific discoveries, you know, a lot of the best scientific discoveries were noticing a two minute and 20 second gap in, you know, when the sun was supposed to set or fall um, and then rethinking the entire, you know, sort of planetary system because of a two minute gap. Um, so I think that's important is uh, attention to detail, but looking for anomalous data that's inexplicable under the current conventional wisdom. Those are probably the two most important initial precepts. And then the third is just like as in sports, talent is everything. You know, we have an adage that I borrowed from a former colleague, board member of mine, Vinod Kosla, who's been a very successful founder and VC of the team you build is the company you build. Ultimately, you can get a lot of distract. You can be very distracted in Silicon Valley and technology companies with what's the technology, what's the product, et cetera. But it really comes down to the people. If you have the right people, it is amazingly easy uh, to succeed. If you're the wrong people, it's almost impossible. So the, the, the underlying secret to the PayPal success was really that Max and Peter, the two co-founders, had uh, arrayed an incredible assembly of talent, a critical density of talent, and were able to therefore achieve things that would have been you know, disasters had other, other groups of people tried them. Yeah, when I see that and when I hear that, that, that makes a lot of sense. We've got on our bookshelf behind us. Zero to one, it's it's one of the, I mean, Jason recommended I read that book probably like three or four years ago. And after reading, it was like, oh, wow. And we, we were just mentioning before this, and we were talking about that book, that the secret is something that I think is such a cool way to frame it. And then what you just married up with that, I think, is an, from another one of my favorite authors, Simon Sinek, and his book and TED Talk on Start With Why is the people that are then involved in that business have to especially in the early stages, believe in what they're doing, why they're doing it. Um, and that then correlates to selling that why or presenting that why to others, because that's the way that the human mind consumes. And I think a lot of examples that I've seen in, in those books and, and businesses that have done great things, sometimes to, you know, we see that they then turn and fall under. And it could be a switch in management. It could be going public and it changes their perception on what it is they were doing and why they were doing it. So a question I think that would stem from that would be, you know, you are being presented and invest in lots of different businesses and have done very well in doing that. What have been some that you've missed on, whether that was a missed investment on something that you're like, I don't know if that's a thing or something that you actually did put time and effort and capital into that didn't work out? And why is that? So, yeah, I'd say there's two things. Obviously, you know, no investor is perfect. And uh, I'm not sure there's any investor that has a monopoly on every great investment ever. But um, I certainly lose sleep over a few. Um, but fundamentally, most of the bad decisions I've made as an investor, qua investor, are actually initial meetings that I didn't take. So one of the challenges is being, with being a professional VC is you're sort of deluged with opportunities. Um, most, at least for the last 15 years or so, there's been uh, you know, an enormous array of companies created at a high velocity of company creation. And you actually cannot meet all of them. And you can't meet every possible founder. And so you have to filter your time on some dimensions. And I think every all but one, maybe two significant mistakes I've made are meetings that I declined uh, to take. Um, so it's a filtering problem versus a judgment, you know, at the actual meeting in terms of assessing, 
either the entrepreneurs, the team, or the company. Uh, so no, no easy solution. There's still only 24 hours in a day. Uh, you know, deciding who to take meetings with is still by far the most challenging part for an early stage investor. Um, in terms of investments that we make that don't succeed, I think what you're trying for in relatively early stage venture capital is a little bit like a baseball batting average, which is somewhere between you know, 30 and 40% is phenomenally successful, like sort of Hall of Fame caliber. And so I actually think it's a bad uh, signal if an investor's successful too often. Um, it means they're probably take, not usually not taking enough risk. Uh, so I would want my success rate to be over 50%. I'd be a little bit nervous that I'm being too conservative in pulling the trigger um, in investing. But I, I think you should be able to be roughly at 40% success rate if you're applying um, the right principles to the right people. And so that's what I'm really trying for is roughly around a 40% success rate. Yeah, I love that you've got kind of that down to the numbers. I can't remember. Um, definitely someone in your circle is like, if, you, if you're succeeding too often, you're not working on like big enough problems. It's like definitely not a, not a direct quote, but I, I love that you talked about having a filter for your time. And I am very curious on, um, as a direct question, how do you filter meetings? I'm sure that you kind of have a, a little bit of a spidey sense now and things that you're interested in and feel like you have leverage over, but maybe pull that out even more. And just how do you filter your time now that you know, you're being, you have travel, you're being pulled across a lot of different businesses and commitments um, and understand that you have a limited amount of time. Like, how do you choose to filter your time? Um, I know that fitness is obviously a huge part of your life. So can you just kind of walk through how you filter your time? How much of that is taken up with work being done versus prospective meetings being taken versus your own research versus the things that you just like to do for fun? Would love to uh, have you walk through that. Yeah, I think the most important lesson is something Peter Thiel also taught me in 2000, realistically, um, is that people systematically undervalue their time. If you think about it, the scarcest resource that all of us have is time. You can always recreate other resources. So if you're out of money, in theory, you can create new money. Um, but time, no one's yet figured out how to create more of. So I think you have to ascribe a significant value to every increment of time, whether it's a minute, an hour, you can divide it however you like. But fundamentally, asking yourself, is this worth it? Is this the best thing I can be doing with my time? So I've sort of always had that philosophy. Um, I think Peter distilled it for me in a way of applying it. And then once you have that philosophy, you start asking yourself questions like, is this literally the best thing I can be doing with my time? And so that requires you to have a, sort of a pre-existing view about what's important to you in life. Is it professional success? family, health, fitness, whatever. But you have to come, you sort of have to derive your top two or three priorities first. And then it's like, how do I systematically ensure that I'm allocating my time to meet my priorities? So if for me, professional success is important, then I would expect somewhere between 25 and 50% of my time to be allocated to professional success. And then what I would do is actually analyze, you know, retroactively every week or every month in my allocating properly time against my objectives. Um, I do look for efficiency within, and then you can decompose this with, within time. So when I'm going to, let's say, invest in uh, training or working out, I do think about what's the most effective use of incremental time. So what's, what's the, what in one hour, let's say, what is the most I can achieve? And then look for solutions for that. The same thing is true actually in um, personal life, which is as you get more successful, you have the ability to potentially trade time, uh, money for time. So anytime I can trade money for time, I almost always will make that uh, trade. So, you know, many years ago, I started hiring a personal assistant. And basically the goal of the personal assistant was to eliminate from my schedule or calendar every day, anything that could be eliminated that wasn't like a high leverage activity. So that I was basically spending going from maybe 50%, 60% of my time in a week allocated to things I cared about to being able to allocate 80 to 85%. Unfortunately, there's still stuff like 
going to the DMV or going to the doctor that's really hard to outsource. But uh, fundamentally, it's like a ratio of what fraction of my time any week is allocated, allocated to the stuff I care most about. Let's say, in my case, professional goals, friends, family, and fitness. Um, that's basically what I look at is what fraction is on target. Um, I, you know, I, but it's somewhat counterintuitive. For example, I think one of the most important things anybody can do to achieve both health and fitness and to some extent happiness is sleep eight hours a day. So I start every day with how do I allocate eight hours to sleep and then reverse engineer the rest of the day from there, even though, you know, the superficial way to allocate time would be to compromise on sleep. But I think that actually undermines the value of the rest of the day. So I start and have for over 20 years focused obsessively on how do I get eight hours sleep every day? I think that that's one of the practices that when Jason and I, coach clients or run our retreats, we do a, a time allocation uh, strategy session and we always reverse allocate from sleep. So the fact that you mentioned that is is extremely important because for somebody that's working out and, and putting in not only physical stress, but mental stress and is, you know, under, you know, when you, when you do so many different things, the, the best form of recovery out there, which again, like you mentioned, nobody has figured out how to beat time. Sleep is the best. I mean, it's better than any sort of cryotherapy or any sort of massage. It, there's just nothing that beats it. So I think reverse engineering from that is, is extremely important. And the thing that really stuck out from what you just mentioned was the understanding of this, this allocation of time. And then I think one of the things that I really pulled from that was that you actually then take time to evaluate how you spent your time or i think a lot of people a lot of people just think oh i work eight hours a day okay well if you're at work for eight hours a day but two of those hours are on social media one of those hours is on a phone call with your friend and then the one hour is walking between meetings like you're really only working for you know this many hours and so it's a really important thing to take time to evaluate that. And I think the only way to do that is, is through a practice of mindfulness. So it's like, am I mindful with what I'm doing? Am I practicing mindfulness to understand what it is I'm doing? And then most importantly, why? Is there anything you do within the the day that gives you kind of that mindfulness focus, whether that is working out, meditation, therapy, um, kind of how did you come to what you just stated? Because, you know, you don't just wake up and you're 30 and you're like, okay, well now I'm going to optimize my time. Like it is an evolving practice. Is there anything you do that kind of gets you in that mindset or that gives you the practice to like take a step back and, and evaluate Um, because somebody that's being pulled in so many different directions. I just remember when I was in, in the corporate world and those that were like super high above me, we're just being pulled from meeting to meeting. And it was like, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm not really there because I'm thinking about what's next. And like, you know, that's not going to be good when, you know, the founders of Airbnb are sitting with you. If you're thinking about who's next, you have to be mindful of where you are. So are there any practices that you do to, to get you to become better at that? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the example that I, that I use in uh, sort of serving as a advisor consigliere to CEOs is, the first thing we always do is I actually go ask the CEO to, at least before COVID, go to a whiteboard and write down their two or top two to four priorities, right? Just like on bullet points, sort of on the whiteboard. And then they finish the exercise. And then, uh, then I'm like, okay, uh, pull out your laptop and we're going to log into what's typically a Google calendar. And then we're going to go look at their last week and month on the laptop, uh, Google calendar sort of view and calculate what percentage of their time last month or last week they spent against each of these three or four priorities. And inevitably, there's a disconnect. Like, I've actually, I'm not sure I've ever seen it perfectly aligned. And so all you have to do is go through that exercise once, and it's pretty instructive that most people are just mismatching their time to their priorities. And so just by just by calibrating that better, they're fundamentally likely to get better results. Then, of course, you can look at things like, you know, how do you strip extraneous things that can be delegated or outsourced out of your calendar to create more opportunities for new stuff, for new, new investments of time. And then, you know, let's go to in, in the workout sense, you can always, 
read, research, like what's most effective. If I only have a fixed amount of time, let's call it an hour a day, what could I do that's most effective for my health and fitness goals? So you, you kind of decompose it. But I think starting first principles is just like, what are your top two or three, four priorities? And then let's just look back at your last week and month. I'm like, how, how, how successfully are you mapping your, your time to your prioritization? Yeah, that I think that that is yeah that 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 drill. I, I I go through that drill too at least two or three times a year, and you know this will be a personal question, and for you know for Jason and I as we're growing our business, um, and you know in the early stages of a business when you're successful, you get pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, people ask time of you, and Jason and I have done a very good job of making sure that our time is valued. I would say the one thing, the hardest thing for me personally, in, in a lot of things you just talked about, is being able, and and I think it's because maybe I've always been a really hard worker. It's the only thing that's gotten me through anything. Like we were talking before the call about me trying to dunk, and I don't have any natural athletic ability. It's not like I was like, oh yeah, I was all state in four sports in <laughs> high school, or like, yeah, you know, I picked up a soccer ball and I could just dribble it. I never had any of that. It was just straight hard work and hustle and like didn't get a good ACT score, like none of that. It was just like continued effort. And I think there's a lot of good with that. But the other side of it is I feel like I can do it all. So I feel like I can analyze our data from the emails we set out and record our podcast and do all these different things. And I guess the hardest part for me is to sit back and say, wow, if I was to hire somebody as an assistant, like you mentioned, um, to pay them money that I'm earning to do some of those things, it would free up more time. I just can't get over that hurdle. Like it's really hard for me. Jason and I have one employee since we've hired her, things have gone through the roof. It's been incredible, but it's still just hard for me to be like, how, how like I can do it. Like I can sit down on Sunday night and schedule all my clients in my meetings, but I could also hire somebody to do that. So what advice would you give to me or anybody else that's at that tipping point where they have the financial resources to hire, but they're just like, maybe they won't do it as good as me or like there's a learning curve or like, is it worth the money because I can still do it? Can you talk me through kind of that? Because I think that's my biggest sticking point from taking things to have more of that time you mentioned to then allocate that to bigger picture ideas, thus creating more growth, higher trajectory, and honestly, like more free time for fun. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the key insight there is that it's not as if you're going to work less. You're just creating opportunities to spend more time doing things that are even better with higher upside, more asymmetric upside, or more enjoyment. So I wouldn't look at it as like, you know, I, I'm a strong proponent of work ethic and believe that that's like one of the most important things in life, even for people who are naturally gifted at various things. But fundamentally, if you can substitute an hour of scheduling clients to an hour of, you know, some breakthrough activity, that's better. So I would always try to trade time, uh, again, money for time, and then allocate the time to the most interesting, most provocative highest upside, highest challenge thing you can do at that time and constantly cycle yourself through like, how do I do more and more and more of that? It becomes somewhat addicting of like, well, great. You know, like this other thing isn't that like value creating. So why, you know, why bother doing that for an hour? I can get somebody to do that, you know, 80% as good as me. But then in that hour, I can do something 5x greater than what I, what I could have done otherwise. Um, and at some point you'll hit a one-on-one stabilization where Literally, you run out of great ideas to invest the time in. And so, or the cost, the incremental cost of hiring someone who has the right skill may go up and there may be some equilibrium there. But typically, you can delegate or hire someone to do a lot of stuff um, pretty successfully. You know, Eisenhower had this great quote when he was president of the most difficult thing to be president is to learn to sign a bad letter. And what he basically meant by that is like, look, you know, you hire people to write letters on your behalf when you're the president of the United States. Yeah, in, in theory, you could, certainly he could write them, you know, more elegantly and more precisely than whatever staff he was hiring to write his letters. But at the end of the day, there's probably more useful things for him to be doing with his time as president of the United States. Um, and so I think that's important too, is to understand 
when is something good enough that the marginal benefit of your eyes on it and attention to it isn't really worth it. And that that's also, you know, a hard um, sort of lesson uh, to learn and calibrate, but it's pretty, pretty fundamental as well is if you're a perfectionist about everything, you may not be able to achieve um, some really great things because you do have to sort of take your eye off the ball on some things that are just more commoditized. Yeah, this is Jason. Now, I, Brett and I both suffer from the same affliction of just trying to do everything ourselves, which definitely made us grow slower, I think, in the beginning. Um, but kind of making that mistake, if you want to call it that, uh, I think has allowed us to be in all parts of our business, which has then given us the understanding to start to reach out to people who we know will do a good job rather than... I think that's great. I actually, I do recommend that, by the way. I think starting with doing everything by hand and by yourself is a great way to learn. How important is this? A, what's the right skill set of the person I want to hire to do this? In fact, later today, you know, momentarily, I think we're going to publish one of two sub stacks on the topic of how do you, as an executive, learn to hire and manage um, executives in domains that they don't really understand. So for example, if I grew up in product and engineering, I need a CFO or a general counsel. How do I learn to hire one of those people? And how do I learn to manage them? Or let's say I was producing hardware product like a watch, but I'm a software engineer. Um, how do I learn to manage the hardware engineering? So I think that's a relevant one insight is you start by doing it yourself. You get a feel for what's important, what's not, how the, how the puzzle pieces sort of fit together and then you can more accurately both assess who you should hire but also manage that person successfully and there are also times when it's better to do things yourself so i notwithstanding my advice about trading you know money for time i actually think that there are times when people try to over delegate and it'd be much easier in terms of getting to a fast rapid successful outcome by just doing things with your own hands so, you know, I'm not allergic to doing that at all. Um, it's sort of a debate I have with my husband who um, he loves to delegate. And sometimes I just point out to him that, you know, by the time you go out to the market, find the right person, assess them, close them, manage them, bring them up to speed. If you had just done, you know, activity X or Y yourself, it would already be finished. Uh, so I think you can take this to extremes where um, you're trying to do that trade off in your mind of, if I do this myself, it'll take 30 minutes. That's not ideal. But if I have to go find the right person to do this and manage them and correct, you know, do some error correction, it's going to take 62 minutes. I'd be better off just doing the 30 minutes myself. Now, if it's 30 minutes that you're going to repeat every day, yep. sure, it's worth that investment or 30 minutes every week. Absolutely. Um, so it depends on, you know, how repetitive is the task but also what the equation is between or the trade-off between doing it yourself versus training someone to do it. That I feel like is really important to think about too for early founders is when you are hustling and running around, starting to take stock of those things that do get repeated more often than not. And I think in fitness, at least where we can speak to in an overall health and wellness it's been a crazy shift towards a digital world where if you were recording and sort of scaling a lot of the activities that you were doing right from the start, that you would never have to do them again. And then you'd have a library of things to sell. It's like a great Peloton model is teach a live class and then sell the class on the back end as subscription. It's like ends up being something that I think from the start, you know, if we had been recording and doing these things, we could do them a lot less and then expound that out to, you know, your day-to-day tasks, just like an interesting thing to start about, just to, to think about as you're starting, which I'm sure as you've been building more businesses, like you start to notice those patterns as you've gone through the same types of exercises with founders and CEOs. Yeah, there definitely are patterns of when you do this exercise, I, I call it a calendar audit, when you're looking at someone's calendar and mapping against their prioritization. There's systematic uh, biases and mistakes people make. Like, for example, many CEOs profess publicly and privately that, you know, the most important thing we do is recruit and our team building and all that stuff. 
And then you look at their calendar and they're allocating 10% of their time to recruiting. And I'm like, you obviously don't believe your number one priority is recruiting because I just looked at your calendar and it's your seventh priority. So like, you know, that's a very common mistake. I've almost never found a CEO who actually on their calendar makes recruiting their number one priority, even though I'd say 70% of CEOs say that almost zero in my experience actually allocate their time that way. Uh, yeah. It, and taking stock, I think of the things that you are doing in your calendar. The first time I had kind of run through that exercise was financially. And the first time I had heard it presented a few years ago as like a, a bigger topic was when going through your budget. It's like, I can tell your priorities based on your spending habits. Like you can say that this is what you value, but here's what you actually spend money on. Like there are receipts <laughs> for the things that you have voted your money and time for. And going back and realizing, oh, this is, you know, I'm making a mistake by over-investing time or money here. I'm making a mistake by over-investing time or effort here is a really important exercise, whether you're talking about hiring or finances or personal time on how to balance personal versus professional. I think it's really important. Yeah, no, I always look at how people allocate their time and then implicitly their money. Um, I actually, you know, uh, sometimes get in trouble with my friends for doing this, but I actually gauge all the people in my life by how they allocate their time. Um, like I, I sort of rigorously uh, critique my friends on how they allocate their time and judge them that way. Um, <laughs> in a very sometimes amusing, sometimes a little bit more uh, um, acrimonious conversation. What, uh, Keith? I wanted to ask what what is like super exciting to you right now in business? the world projects you're working on personally, like what do you feel like when we, when you have gotten to the level where you are, when you kind of have your, your pick of the projects you want to focus on and, and you kind of know where you're settled in, like what is super exciting to you right now? You know, honestly, I don't think there's any macro inflection in the world of like what's exciting and what's not. Um, what I've been doing for the last 20 years is, you know, it's been extremely intellectually challenging. It's been, uh, quite psychologically rewarding to see, you know, some ideas turn into reality and turn into success. Uh, but fundamentally, the goal of finding kind of these misfits, like people that are underappreciated by society in some ways, or undervalued by society, or discounted by society, giving them um, financial resources that allow them to propel, to propels them allows them to chase their dream and then giving them some advice and feedback that hopefully is constructive and useful um, and, and, you know, sort of in accelerating their success is really what sort of propels me. And it's still just as exciting to be able to find, you know, some 19 year old in the middle of the world that nobody knows who the hell he or she is and give them the opportunity to transform an industry or society as a whole and then watch them sort of grow up um, and develop. It's a lot like, you know, in professional sports, it's a little bit like finding this undiscovered high school, you know, sort of baseball player, basketball player, choose your, you know, poison, um, and giving them the opportunity to thrive and, you know, sort of serving as a mentor, coach, consigliere, psychologist along the way. And as long as that's true, what I do is, you know, phenomenally fascinating. And the ability to still find those people, you know, is, I don't take for granted. I think it does get more challenging, actually, as you get older. Um, the ability to be constructive, be able to um, sort of teach and provide conceptual uh, frameworks that are applicable to their problems is, is really difficult and challenging and to be relevant. And then, you know, watching, watching that. Um, and so just repeat. It's like rinse and repeat. But it's that the ability to rinse and repeat is not preordained um, at all. Um, and the ability to do that in the competitive marketplace for the last five years or so, the other people who provide capital advice, feedback to entrepreneurs, you know, has excel, uh, amplified a lot. So, you know, I compete with a lot of other fairly talented people. And so be able to do that faster, better, smarter than other people who are pretty damn good at what they do is, is intellectually rewarding, if nothing else. What do you think is giving you an edge as you do that? Or what do you focus on to give you an edge? We talked about sleep um, because I'm always extremely curious about this. Brett and I have private clients that are at the executive level. 
Um, we've got people that work in venture capital and private equity and banking. And I think that at the speed at which companies are being formed, I can't remember the stat I saw but this year, like more LLCs and companies have been filed for. Um, as you know, companies are coming out at speed, as these deals are being done at speed, do you think about trying to find an edge to continue doing that faster? Or for you, is it more a judgment of quality? Like if you can get eight hours of sleep, you can work out this time per day, you can get this much family time in and you live in balance. If a deal comes, you feel like you're in the best position to give all your energy to it? Or do you think about it in terms of finding an edge to make speed work to your advantage? Because I could see both being a successful strategy. I start pretty much top down with a, what is my comparative advantage? Just like as if I were constructing a business, like on what dimensions do I want to compete with the rest of the world? And how do I frame everything I do to, uh, to amplify or magnify that value proposition? So to be tangible about it, well, let's start with a, a sort of a book I read in high school. Um, uh, Pat Riley wrote a, a book called The Winner Within. He's actually written several books, but um, he wrote this book uh, after his Lakers journey um, called The Winner Within. And in it, he says, basically, you don't want to be the best at what you do. You want to be the only one who does what you do, actually quoting Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. And that sort of resonated with me like junior year of high school. And so I've sort of always thought about it from that perspective is don't define yourself as the best, define yourself uniquely. And then that, once you sort of apply that prism, you start clarifying in your own mind, like, how do I want to compete? And if you're in, not, not every, not every industry, not every business and every goal is zero sum, but some are some athletic, you know, there's going to be one NBA champion, et cetera. So some things are zero sum. Um, venture is closer to zero sum, but it's still not truly zero sum. Uh, being an entrepreneur is actually a lot less zero sum. Like if my company succeeds, for the most part, it doesn't mean that your company can't be phenomenally successful. So you can choose things where it's less competitive. But in a competitive industry, you want to sharpen your comparative advantage as much as possible and amplify it, magnify it all day, every day. I think we think about that a lot. That's a great insight. I just got done reading Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, and he obviously has written a lot of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or his book, but he's written a lot about how habits form and human behavior. And he does it in a very functional uh, way that I think can apply to anybody. And in the book, he talks at length kind of about um, combining unique habits to basically like create your own stage. So to that point, not trying to say, yeah, it's like, it's like for us, especially like, Brett and I are trainers and yoga teachers and meditation coaches, and we teach corporate workshops. We do yoga for kids. And in any one of those areas, there's somebody who's doing that exceptionally well. We still yet to meet somebody to put experiences together and to speak to such a wide breadth of audience in the way that we do as a unique combination. It's something I've been thinking about a lot more recently, rather than trying to compare ourselves in any one of those fields, saying who else is doing what we're doing at all. And it's, it is, it's interesting to look around to see kind of like where you, who you start to compare yourself to and on what stage you find yourself playing on. Yeah. So I, I I actually think atomic habits is, is fundamentally quite insightful the way I would reframe it. um, His advice, you know, the way I sort of before reading his uh, book, but the way I would articulate this similar concept is you want to convert Anything with um, somewhat a deferred gratification uh, process, you want to convert to a subconscious habit instead of a conscious decision. So for me to be tangible, I just decided X years ago that I'm going to work out every single day, period, no exceptions. Because then it's not a question of, you know, how do I feel today? How busy am I? How much energy do I have? What mood am I in? It's just auto-magical that I'm going to do my workout. And there literally is no exception. I would have to be basically dying um, to avoid working out. And in, like, for example, in 2019, I missed, I think it was three days of working out. And two of them were because I crossed the international dateline traveling. 
which I have not yet figured out how to solve, but I am working on it. Um, I, I will find a solution to that. But literally every other day but one, I managed to do at least an hour workout. And so, but for me, that COVID was actually a problem. The first month of COVID before there was a lot of alternatives, I had such a routine that was just automatically programmed into my brain of how I do my workouts that when COVID and quarantine and lockdowns occurred and I had to deviate, it actually caused real stress for me because I was like, oh my God, I could undermine all the last you know five years of my training very easily because I no longer have a programmatic routine. Now I have to consciously design a workout every day. And that's awful for you know for habit building. Eventually, you know, two months later, there was enough adjustment in the world that could reprogram into a new habit and a new set of routines that are subconscious again, but it was really stressful for six to eight weeks. Yeah. We talk about, um, which he does a lot in that book, but we have just sort of finally kind of settled on what we actually do at live better, which is to build various health systems and how they work together. And I think to that point, something that we have been talking to clients about for a long time is it's not the outcome from any one activity. It's the system that you build and the system that you had built was I'm going to program in X routine. Well, if there's no backup to that system, then all of a sudden that sort of like hole in your schedule then creates like almost an exponential amount of stress that carries over into so many other things, especially when you've put so much importance on the workout itself. And the like kind of talking about choice architecture, about how you just made a decision to work out every day and designing your schedule and the allocation of your time and your environment around making sure you get to that, how much life and energy um, stems from that is like, is, is all kind of a very important insight into thinking like we also sort of need to build in choice architecture when, if we have very rigid routines, what are you going to do if that routine breaks? It's like almost having secondary options. Obviously COVID is a little out of left field. Like nobody was planning for that, but it is interesting to think about people who are so routine and programmed, like what happens when that breaks, where and how are you going to be adaptable? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's some things like COVID, I'm not sure it would have been that useful for me for 20 years to plan, you know, a backup strategy to my, to all like gyms and fitness being completely shut down. Um, you know, but now actually, you know, speaking realistically, so I, I do have a gym at home. So, you know, I had a, a set of degrees of flexibility that most people did not have, but, and that was always like a nice to have, you know, a benefit, sort of a nice benefit. Um, post COVID though, as I've thought about, you know, potentially moving one of the filters, that's a very top level filter actually, when, uh, we consider a, a new house is does it have the space that would be easily convertible into a full gym? And it's gone from a, you know, a backup nice to have to an absolutely explicit criteria that, you know, I communicate to my real estate agents when they're like sending potential properties to me is like, it's non-negotiable. It's also non-negotiable now for the house to have enough flexibility for two offices uh, for me and my spouse. Whereas that's something again, you know, I had I had a home office, but it was something I'd probably use between twenty and forty minutes a week before COVID, and now I use it, you know, somewhere between four and twelve hours a day. And so now it's also non-negotiable to have a backup of a home office if I ever move. Yeah, I think that it's been a you know this time has been a very interesting time to think introspectively about things like that, things like you know, backup plans, what's important to us. And the fact that you didn't break from it. I mean, you see a lot of people that it was their routine to work out in the morning or to walk to work or whatever was their sort of like wellness habit. And then when it ended or when it was taken away, it was a, it was a stop. And so I think it's just one of those things. And like, we talk about this a lot, but, and you, and you talked about it too, is the value of what it is that you do. And so because you value it, you figure it out. Like if you didn't value the workout, but it was just in your schedule because you knew it was a benefit, you might slack a little bit more when things are tough or when you're traveling to a city or something like that. But, you know, I think it just, it comes down to really understanding the value of, of, of what you spend your time doing, which is a lot of what we've talked about today. 
Um, and one of the one of the things we ask everybody on our show, um, and would love to hear your answer is if you could wake up tomorrow. Our motto is to have the best day ever every single day. And what we mean by that is create that. Like you choose your response to everything. Um, if you go wake up tomorrow, there's no restrictions. You can do anything you want. Uh, what is Keith's best day ever look like? Uh, it's probably two to three berries workouts. Um, <laughs> and then uh, follow, <laughs> uh, followed by uh, reading a good book, uh, you know, two or three uh, CEOs, uh, one-on-ones. Um, hopefully in, in real life, in real world meetings, not Zoom calls. Um, and then um, probably, let's see, what else should I do? A good Yankees baseball game would be nice. Um, but uh, we could fit that in later. And uh, I don't know, uh, maybe an hour or two for writing, uh, which is actually one of the things, unfortunately, that I've been pretty uh, weak at prioritizing um, in the last X years of my life. Whereas actually I was a pretty dedicated um, as a result, proficient writer earlier in my life, but it's been one of the things that I've just had to cut or chosen to cut um, for my life. But you know, on a perfect day, I'd probably get back into writing. Yeah. that I mean, that's, it's a pretty solid day. One book I would recommend if you haven't read it, have you heard of uh, the war of art by Stephen Pressfield? I have not. I would recommend that book for the specific writing habit that you want to instill. Um, Quick synopsis. It's one of my favorite books. We recommend it to all the people that we work with. Um, It is about confronting the resistance that you have kind of like metaphysically to do anything that you really want to do. It's interesting because Stephen Pressfield is a very um, successful author. And so he specifically in his book gives anecdotes to writing a book. Um, and how to essentially understand that we have resistance within us, whether that is like, I just can't do this every single day, or I'm waiting for this creative inspiration. Uh, I would recommend reading it. We can, we can talk about it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome book on creating the time to specifically write or to do anything, um, at all. Yeah, I know. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. I'm a, you know, you probably noticed on Twitter, I'm a fairly voracious reader. Yes, I know. Um, I was going to say you probably read it in one day. So <laughs> I, I, I probably will. Yeah. But uh, yeah, one my my book recommendations for me to close with are probably my favorite book of all time is The Upside of Stress um, by Kelly McDougall at Stanford, um, which is basically about how do you change your framework, mental framework, particularly around stress. Yeah, And then once you do, if you want to live a happier more productive, more successful and healthier life. You actually want to embrace stress, not run away from stress. And so I think that's indispensable to success. success. And then secondly, uh, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker will absolutely convince you if you haven't already been convinced about the powers and the magic of sleep. And in fact, the downsides of skipping on sleep and, you know, uh, from a productivity standpoint, from a health standpoint, from a happiness standpoint, so I would start with those two um, are, you know, my specific recommendations. But if you go to my media tab on Twitter, I basically turned it into a book recommendation tab. Uh, so anybody wants to uh, read some interesting stuff, just search on my media tab and you'll find some cool stuff. Awesome. Where can people find you on Twitter? Um, I'm just at Raboy, R-A-B-O-I-S. Uh, pretty easy to find. Um, lots of tweets. Hopefully some of them are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find, I find your Twitter very interesting. Um, Keith, we want to say thanks. We know your time is of, high, of the highest of priority. And so we want to say thanks for spending a little bit of, of time with us today, sharing some really good insight. I think our audience is going to really resonate with this because we've got a lot of people that are starting businesses, um, following us for that reason, and or have the itch to scratch to do so. Um, and so I'd love for you to close with a piece of advice for those people that have an itch to scratch, that haven't really put that into action yet. What would you say is the best way to start? I think the best way to start is to figure out what's most important to you. I think you can't really aim for anything. You can't really succeed in anything if you don't know what you're aiming for at some point. I think it's fine to wander a bit in, as, as I did you know, in law for a while, but at some point you want to concentrate and have a fixed set of objectives and prioritization. 
Um, so I think there's a uh, there's a great book also called Range, which uh, advocates the benefits of sampling. And so I think sampling early in life, different activities, different priorities makes tons of sense. But then once you recognize what makes you happy psychologically, what you're actually proficient at, and hopefully the Venn diagram of those two, then you should strictly rank your priorities and then optimize your time and energies around achieving them. It's awesome, Keith. Thank you so much. Uh, and we wish you the best day ever. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Thanks.